guilty. So as we prepare to hear the scripture this morning, let's uh, say the Shema together. Sometimes, most of the times we're standing. You can stand in spirit if you want to this morning. Uh, Let's stand together in spirit and recite the Shema together. You will find it on the screens in front of you and behind you. There's some Hebrew in it, but we give it a try. Let's say the Shema together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. You can have a seat. The scripture passage this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Balah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. When they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out. He took a hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord with him to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark. So David went to bring the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And then in verse 17... They brought the ark of the Lord. They set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This last week on my my back porch... I've been watching a tarantula. Yeah, it's been there since Monday of this week. The spider is large enough to spot from different windows on the back of my house. And you know what? It doesn't move much. It can stay in one place for hours, the creepy thing. Then I'll look out the window and it's moved maybe a foot or maybe a couple of inches. I've been told that tarantulas aren't aggressive, but it's kind of freaking me out. The cushions on my back porch furniture are a nice chocolate brown, and so it makes me a little hesitant to plop down on the seats on my back porch. When I get up in the morning, one of the first things I do is peek out the window to see where the tarantula is now. 
The big spider has reminded me of the Ark of the Covenant. Parked at the home of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. You know, the Ark is there because it's proved to be dangerous. David is keeping an eye on that Ark of the Covenant. Obed-Edom is a foreigner. Perhaps he's a Philistine that's attached himself to David when he was hiding out from King Saul. That he would house the Ark of the Covenant was not in the original plan. That the Ark appears at all in this story now in 2 Samuel is a bit of a surprise. You know, it's been a while since we've heard anything of it. Since 1 Samuel chapter 7. So why does David think of going to retrieve it now? For 20 years, it's been sitting dormant. Why does he go get it now? And when he goes to retrieve it, the scripture says he takes 30,000 able young men with him. And this is the number of Israelite warriors that were killed by the Philistines when the ark was captured. So that's why he takes 30,000. David takes 30,000 to the house of Abinadab to retrieve the ark. And as the caravan is traveling, Abinadab's son His own son, Uzzah, is killed. He's struck down simply because he reaches out his hand to catch the ark, to keep it from falling. Theologian and Hebrew Bible translator Robert Alter wrote this about that matter. The ark as God's throne is invested with awesome divine power. To touch it, even in an effort to keep it from slipping, is to risk being consumed. As when one comes in contact with a high voltage electric core. Uzzah dies. This no doubt ruins the trip. King David is angry and he parks the ark. He puts the ark at the home of Obed-Edom for three months. But David needs that ark in Jerusalem. He does. Jerusalem is to become a new royal city for a new royal family. The ark is old. The ark is really old. It belongs to a previous time. It belongs, in fact, to many previous times. It's played a significant role in the story of God's people. Whenever there's a difficult journey, whenever there's an impossible task, the ark is there. The ark is there in the forefront. The ark went before the Israelites on their wilderness journey. It was instrumental in crossing the Jordan River to the promised land. And the ark was marched around and around the walls of Jericho by Joshua. When it is captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel, we have the end of an era. We have the end of the house of Eli. And now the ark's recovery is also happening simultaneously with the end of the house of Saul. Saul's daughter, David's wife, Michal, watches this procession from a window with disdain. And in verse 23 of this very chapter of 2 Samuel 6, we hear that she will have no children. Saul's daughter will have no children. This is definitely 
the end of the line of Saul. While the ark sits at Obed-Edom's house, David sits in this uncertain time. He sits in this in-between time, what we have come to describe as a liminal time or a liminal moment. An ending has come and a new future lies ahead. And the presence of the ark in Jerusalem is important. It can establish David's reign. It can legitimate David's rule. So how to get to that point is the question. When to get to that point? How the people of Israel get from this definite ending to a new beginning is what we see in this scripture story. Theologian Richard Rohr that Brene Brown mentioned in the video has written on the topic of liminal space in our lives. He says it's when we are betwixt and between, having left one stage of life but not yet entered the next. Rohr says that often these times are graced times, but they don't really feel like it. They can feel very difficult. They're not easy, but they are powerful places where we can begin to think in new ways. The root of the word is limon, which means threshold. And so a liminal space is like hanging out in a doorway, not in either comfortable room. Most often, most often we inhabit a liminal space when our former way of life is challenged and we haven't yet figured out the next new way. Like when a job is lost or a loved one dies or a baby is born or a global pandemic shows up. There is this settling in that needs to take place. A lot of energy and patience is required on our part. Humility is often forced on us. We become very teachable because we need information. We need new information. We have to find a new way. It's my experience that these times can be very vulnerable times. Rohr claims, and I think he's right, that one of the ways that we can spot spiritual giants is that they choose to live in liminality. They choose it for themselves. They choose to live where things are uncertain. On the edge of the dominant culture, people like Mother Teresa or St. Francis of Assisi or Julian of Norwich or Henry Nouwen or Jesus. They chose to live on the edge of the dominant culture in liminality. You know, I've heard the scripture story of David dancing before the ark taught as a reminder of the importance of joy and the importance of celebration in worship. Verse 14 says this, David danced before the Lord with all his might and he was girded in a linen ephod. Wearing a, limit, a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And so you could write a sermon just using that one verse on the importance of celebration and joy and worship. But put it into the context of the story, I think you find something different. This story doesn't look like a charismatic worship service to me. This scene reminds me of another story that I've heard of David. 
When the Israelites were facing their enemy, the Philistines, a young David emerged with some stones to fight a mighty warrior, Goliath. When Uzzah is struck dead, David emerges dressed in a religious vestment to face the danger. That's not very intimidating. That's not very scary. It seems he's brought the wrong weapon again to the fight. This time in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the mighty warrior that just might take David's life is Israel's God. You know, there really couldn't be a more intimidating adversary. David has had, he's had to face Goliath. He's had to face King Saul. And now he has to face the Lord. Yikes. Psalm 24 is what Jordan read to us earlier in worship. And that psalm ends with the words, who is the king of glory? I think her version said, who is the all in all? Who is the king of glory? The Lord is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Psalm 24 is a processional psalm, and my Bible at home says that this psalm may even have been sung as the ark was processed into Jerusalem the very first time. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The Lord is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. You know, I really do wonder about David's wardrobe choice here. It's this priestly option that is not befitting a king at all. And there's also not much to it. There's certainly no armor to it, no protection. It is really a very vulnerable stance that he takes. Dressed in a linen ephod and dancing like a visible target before a very powerful king who has the capacity to be dangerous. This King David has guts. I really don't think that he is happy and carefree and celebrating life in this chapter of the Bible. If he has any sense at all, he's afraid. But he's just not allowing fear to dictate his actions. If he is successful, the kingship of God will be part of his family's rule will be part of the Davidic line, part of the Davidic rule. And this is a promising combination. The combination of the kingship of God and the Davidic rule. It's a promising combination. It's one that the Israelites need. And it's one that we as Christians profit from. The thing is, it requires courage. It requires courage to put this equation together. It requires courage from King David. In the earlier video, Brene Brown talked about the importance of connection and the inevitability of uncertainty and the fact that shame stops us from being vulnerable, which keeps us from meaningful change in our lives. Brene Brown sometimes uses the word wholehearted to describe leaders. A wholehearted person is someone who wakes up each day and says, I'm enough, no matter what, 
happens, no matter what gets done or is left undone, no matter how imperfect I am, I'm enough. The central quality that wholehearted leaders share, according to Brown's research, is their capacity, their willingness to be vulnerable. That helps us to find the truth that we are enough. Brene Brown has had professional football players and military officers tell her, there is no courage without vulnerability. You know, I think that is exactly what King David is trying to tell us. There is no courage without vulnerability. On Friday of this week, a friend was describing to me a friend of hers who's in her late 80s. She described her to me as a fine Christian woman. And even though I don't know the person that she was talking about, I knew exactly who she was talking about, right? A fine Christian woman looks something like thin, nice, quiet. She was telling me that this fine Christian woman has Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. It's unfair. I agree. Sometimes, you know, upstanding people are struck down. Like David, it makes me angry. Up until the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years, I think I too was on track to be a fine Christian woman. But the rails broke. (laughs) The wheels fell off this train. I'm really not sure which liminal space in my life is to blame. But I would tell you after several liminal spaces, I finally get the message. I'm reassured because David was also on track to be a fine shepherd. He was on track to be a fine shepherd before he met Goliath. And he was on track to be a fine king before he danced like a peasant priest in front of the ark. At the end of my life, at my funeral, I hope that you will call me faithful. I hope you'll call me courageous, maybe even wholehearted. You know, in a couple of places, the Bible says about David that he was one after God's own heart. And I think that's another way to say wholehearted. He was willing to risk vulnerability for the sake of other people and for the sake of God. So was Jesus wholehearted, willing to risk vulnerability for the sake of other people and for God's sake. It's a big adjective, wholehearted. I may never make it, but let's make this deal. You can call me anything at my funeral. I won't be there to hear it. Just don't call me a fine Christian woman. (laughs) Deal? Pray with me. Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. You challenge us to learn and to grow. You challenge us to take risks, to set down our armor, to live fully and truthfully. Send your Holy Spirit to give comfort and reassurance when we must wait for a new way to emerge. 
And would you inspire us when it's time to take risks and move forward? We seek to walk the pilgrimage of this life wholeheartedly. Let it be so. Amen.